have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like? They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically po uh, possible. Now, Todd Myers is a former executive team member of, the, of uh, Washington's Department of Natural Resources and is the environmental director at the um, Washington Policy Center. And he has an interesting idea. Now, what we think about environmentalism, he argues, is horribly dated for today's environmental problems. It used to be that there were a handful of major polluters and we needed to pass laws to prohibit their bad behavior and hire bureaucrats to monitor and regulate them from harming the environment. Now, we've done that and it helped. But today's environmental problems are not that centralized. And we ought not to assume that prohib prohibition and regulation are going to fix them. Instead, there is a more effective approach. And this is something that he covers in his new book, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Todd, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's good to chat with you. Uh, you write that people are already making wonderful environmental progress, building a new model that is changing how we act as stewards of our planet. How, uh, what is that model? Well, I, uh, as you noted, I used to work for the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, and I've worked uh, for about 20 years um, in environmental policy in Washington State, which is obviously a very difficult uh, environment for somebody on the center right like me. But one of the things that I have seen is, is that we are not meeting our environmental goals, despite doing a lot, having a lot of money spent, a lot of regulation. And so the existing model is that anytime we have a problem, we throw money at it, we create a bureaucracy and hope that sort of a top-down solutions work. And that's sort of a 1970s mindset, right? It is the EPA, it is the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And there is some merit to believing that that works because it worked in a lot of ways for to improve our air quality and reduce water pollution, but it's not working today. And the model that we need to uh, use today and now is available to us thanks to technology is a small approach, is a bottom-up innovative approach that harnesses individual incentives, market solutions, local knowledge, those sorts of things. And on a number of key issues that people are concerned about, uh, whether it's ocean plastic or CO2 emissions or protecting species, we see that bottom-up approach doing much better than the top-down big government approaches. Now, much of their book is about exactly I've talking to the people who are involved in these small efforts to fix major problems, um, and and you're dealing and and seeing how they're working. Now, one of them touched on a hobby of mine: bird watching. Uh, can you tell me about uh, eBird and the value it's providing to bird conservation? Yeah, this is a really cool story. And it was one of the first examples that I saw that got me excited about this approach. So the Cornell, uh, Cornell University, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, um, wanted to collect data from bird watchers because bird watchers keep their life list, all the birds that they've seen, when they've seen them, those sorts of things. And they often, you know, obviously just kept them in journals and other things like that. So they wanted to put that um, to allow people to automate that. And so initially what they did is they created a web page where people could take the, the data from their journals, put it on the web page, then and Cornell Labs would have it. But then once we had smartphones, they moved that to um, an app. 
and data collection exploded. Now it's super easy, right? You go out, you see a bird, you put it into the app on your phone. It knows where you are. It knows what you know, day and time of year and everything else. Um, and that data can be collected by the scientists at Cornell so that they now can use it and understand bird patterns, migratory patterns, habitat, things like that. So now they have this huge database. People, uh, people who entered that data weren't doing it for Cornell. They were doing it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So it was a very consumer approach to citizen science. But now Cornell has all this data. And so they decided, what can we do with it? And one of the things that they did was they looked at the Central Valley of California at migratory seabirds to say, OK, is there a way that we can improve the habitat of migratory seabirds along their route? And they found and they were able, because they had this data, to get very granular about exactly what farms along the way would be helpful. And so they went to the farmers and said, why don't you flood your fields um, during January and February when the birds are passing through? It's great habitat for them. You're not using the land and we will pay you to do it. And so they did a reverse auction. Basically, they negotiated a price and the farmers said, OK, great, we will do it. And it was a win win. It was a voluntary approach. It is a market based approach and it created habitat where none existed. And they, they actually ended up calling it Airbnb for birds, right? You were essentially renting the land, the habitat for them for a short period of time. So that's the sort of thing of just, you know, individual bird watchers who are just putting their data into an app don't think about the positive impacts that it can have, but that's how powerful small technology has become is that it allows these sorts of things um, in a way that simply weren't possible 10, even 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and the way I understand that one is especially, it's like, look, we didn't intend to to use this to track this information, but they're like, look, uh, they're looking at the data and they're saying, hey, we've got a lot of rare bird species. The migration season is very difficult for them. It's very dangerous uh, for them. And we can actually improve this one if we can do this. And while we've got this data that can allow us to say, here's some really uh, good places to help that out. And this is how we can help conserve birds. And we can do this targeted. We can do it in a cost-effective way and can create some win-wins. Is that kind of the um, the idea there? That's right. And the contrast is with the typical approach that we have for species, which is a punitive approach. So like the Endangered Species Act mm -hmm. says that if you have habitat or species on your land, you get punished for that, right? You can't use your property. You can't use your land. So it turns endangered species into a liability. What that, what the Airbnb for Birds program did with the Central Valley and negotiating with farmers, it turned habitat into an asset. So it's like you want to have habitat, you want to do these mm -hmm. things and simply switching those incentives to make protecting species, you know, a positive for you is just an, an enormous change in how we deal with species. And we need to do more of that rather than relying on, like I said, the 1970s approach of punishing people um, for doing good things. What do you know about poaching eggs? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this one is in the United States, but it's another example. And this was actually the first example that got me really excited. So, I mean, I used to be a computer programmer, a database programmer years ago. So I love technology and I'm sort of sensitive to it. But when I saw this example, it, it really um, got me thinking. So in Central America, um, protecting sea turtles is a big issue. Sea turtles, many different types of species of sea turtles um, are threatened or endangered. 
And one of the major causes is poaching of eggs. So poachers will go in, when sea turtles lay their eggs, they will grab up the clutch of eggs um, and then sell them to make money. And a group called Paso Pacifico um, worked in Nicaragua primarily and then elsewhere to try to reduce the poaching. And they would talk to the poachers and say, look, here's the problem is, is that, you know, these are threatened and endangered. And they would say, yes, I understand. I'm concerned about that, but I got to feed my family. <laughs> so Paso Pacifico did a really good job of doing the best they could in those circumstances um, to deal with the poachers. But they realized that the biggest problem was not the poachers. It was the network. It was the people who were paying them. So they were trying to figure out how to deal with that. So they were watching Breaking Bad and there was an episode of Breaking Bad where they, where they put a tracker and they said, what if we could put a tracker inside uh, an egg? So they 3D printed an egg. They put a cell phone tracker inside um, and then what they wanted to do is to put it inside a clutch, hide it, so that when the poachers came in, they would just grab all the eggs. They wouldn't see that one of the eggs was um, fake. And then they could track the results and, and, and disentangle the poaching networks, which was really at the source of the problem. Um, and so they were able to do that. And a woman uh, who did her uh, PhD um, was actually working and planting the eggs in Costa Rica um, and was able to track it all the way. A poacher took it and the egg went all the way to a back alley in San Juan, the capital behind a, a grocery store. So they were able to see, okay, here's how this system works. And so they're starting to use these elsewhere in the, in the Caribbean. And it's, it's an example of just a small organization using very available technology and doing something really cool. And just for contrast, uh, Nicaraguan government actually put soldiers with, you know, AK-47s out there to try to protect the turtle eggs. But they were just bribed, right? The poachers would just bribe them to look the other way. And so my interest in this started when somebody told me about this and I, I sort of quipped, well, so you're basically telling me that smartphones and cell phones are more powerful protecting sea turtles than <laughs> AK-47s. And they said, yes. And I, I we sort of laughed and I thought, but actually that's true, right? I mean, it really, the, the government, the heavy handed government approach didn't work, but small technology, you know, the, the, just the simple cell phone tracker is, is what made a difference. And, and in Nicaragua, it's even worse than that because the government gets a cut. So they actually have an interest in the poaching. So how do you fight that? You have to do small efforts like this. And so Paso Pacifico is a really cool group that, that uh, is doing good work. Yeah, and the idea on this one is to say, look, uh, there's just a huge incentive. The economics for these for these poaching are are just you you, you can make a lot more money uh, poaching eggs on the on these things than you than you can in the legitimate economy. Um, but if we can find out how these networks work, we can probably take a cut out of that. So it's not as lucrative, or it's not as 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 right. gainful uh, for it. It's going to probably take a long time because you need more than just where these things are sold and how they're sold, but this is a way to actually figure that out and try and make some progress on it. Yeah, Incre incremental steps. People underestimate the power of incremental steps. But again, when, you're, when you are facing a situation where even the government is profiting from poaching, you have to look for alternatives. And, and this is a very clever and available one. Mm -hmm. Now, when I read your book, uh, you know, the small technology that you're talking about kind of came down to at least three things that I, I, that I looked at, which is sensors, uh, mobile internet connectivity, and database accounts. Um, now, these aren't really new technology, uh, oh. although uh, 
what is new is that now everyone's got one of these things. And, and that's something that's not just an American phenomenon or uh, it's all in the developing world. Uh, uh, these type of technologies are very useful, uh, or at least a smartphone is very useful. Why are these the tools that are going to unlock uh, the solutions to a lot of the problems you cover? Well, in my book, I give lots of different examples because, um, you know, when I, as a free market environmentalist, I give sort of theory and arguments about why the market is better. But then people say, okay, give me an example, right? Make it tangible for me. Um, so I have a lot of examples, but the the theory is still behind it. And, and I think that's what you're asking is why do these work? And there's a variety of reasons. One is that they cut the cost of information. As we talked about with the case of eBird, now for Cornell University, the cost of information about where birds are and where they're migrating is it basically down to zero because people are putting it in, you know, their phone uh, uh, for free um, and the cost of developing and maintaining the app, um, given the information is very low. So one, it radically reduces the cost of information. Second, it, it removes barriers to coordination. So um, uh, these transaction costs, the transaction costs of collaborating, of working together were very high. That's why in the 1970s, if you wanted to do something for the uh, environment, you look to the government because the cost of having average people collaborate on anything other than a very small local project was so high because communication was difficult. Now communication was instantaneous, right? The complaints that we have are too many people are communicating with us. <laughs> so the cost of collaboration has gone from very high to basically non-existent. And those, and so you have, you know, there's economic theories about this. Ronald Coates, who talks about, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in transaction costs and how people make decisions based on the cost of those transaction costs of, you know, communicating and collaborating and, and those sorts of things. And when you drive down uh, transaction costs, you take solutions that previously could only be local and now you make them global. And now you expand them. And so the opportunity to do things on the scale that only government could do before is open to everybody. And there are lots of examples of that. And it's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the simple uh, things that this kind of thing opens up, you, you cover at length, which is crowdfunding. It's like, right. you know, if, if you went uh, you know, 30 years ago and said, I've got an idea, I think only 20,000 people in the entire world might be interested. Well, you're kind of out of luck. Well, now that we've got the internet, those 20,000 people can actually meet, uh, meet with the entrepreneur. Now, there's a lot of noise in that too. It's not, it's not perfect, but these are some of the things that are now possible that just weren't in, 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 in a less connected world. Well, and I'll give you a, a great example. One of my favorite examples of the power of crowdfunding is a thing called CBIN. So there were two surfers who were tired of trash being where they surfed. There was trash that would fall off boats from a local marina, and then they'd be surfing and they would see the trash. And so they're trying to figure out how can we deal with this? So they came up with the idea of just a floating garbage can, right? A garbage can that had a pump at the bottom, would draw water and the trash in and then collect it. And then you could just pick up the can, empty the trash and set it out there floating around again. Um, so they had this idea and they came up with a prototype, like, you know, like garage tinkerers have been, you know, for, forever. Um, but then they said, well, we need, you know, we need to take the next step. How can we do this? So they started promoting it and they put it on a crowdfunding site. And then pretty soon people across the world were giving, you know, five dollars, um, uh, you know, and some people were paying a lot more. And the whole 
purpose was just to help them do this. And now you have sea bins literally across the globe. Um, there was just a recent article actually about them putting sea bins in the Great Lakes up near where you are to pick up floating trash. And what's so interesting is, is that they have collected, I think about 7 million pounds of trash from marinas and, and other places. Now, in the global scheme of things, that's not much, but it is a lot in those locations. And by way of contrast, there is a project, which I think is kind of cool, um, called the, the World's Largest Ocean Cleanup, where they're trying to clean up plastic from the Great Garbage Patch. They also have collectors at rivers. Um, and literally it says the world's largest cleanup. They have collected about 3 million pounds of, of trash, uh, pla trash and plastic. So here are these sea bins, which were just started by crowdfunding, which are just basically floating you know, trash cans, have done more than double what the world's largest purported uh, ocean cleanup has done. And I think, again, it just shows the power of small things to make big impacts if you multiply their impact. And that one is, a, is kind of another one of those examples of the kind of problems that you think that uh, this technology is especially useful for, which is like, it's not one place that is, uh, throwing right. all the plastics in the ocean. It's all of the places and it winds up uh, 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 being this this uh, issue where no one has a particularly concentrated benefit to clean this up. And so how do you how do you face it? Well, start ta start taking small bites at it and see what works. I mean, that seems like it's it's a good example of like the, the kind of problem that you think this technology is designed to solve. Yeah, and the examples that we've talked about so far are basically charitable examples, right? People giving to Seabin because they wanted to reduce ocean plastic. People putting data in uh, to eBird, both for personal reasons, but also knowing that it was going to help others. Um, but there are so many examples now where these things can be turned into businesses and you harness the financial incentives and financial rewards. And one of the things that I tell people is if it's not economically sustainable, it's not environmentally sustainable. So many of the top-down approaches just to sort of hope that, you know, yes, they cost more, but we, but we want it, uh, so we're going to do it, even though it's generally bad for prosperity and other things like that. If you can turn it around and make, um, you know, uh, environmental stewardship in, uh, fiscally responsible and, and make it pay like it did for the farmers in the Central Valley, now you've really got something... It is not contingent on who wins the next election, right? <laughs> if your person doesn't win, you're like, oh, no, we're screwed, you know, because now all the, the things are going to change. Technology doesn't get rolled back. Financial rewarding somebody financially for doing, you know, helping the environment is going to continue uh, unless some really drastic things happen. So it is more sustainable in the truest sense of the word sustainable, which is that you can maintain it over a long period of time. And it's not just contingent on each election. Yeah. Well, let's continue on with some of the theory that you've got uh, for these ideas. Uh, what did you learn from your apiary? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a beekeeper. I am just a hobbyist beekeeper, nothing special. Um, but um, people think it's a little bit weird that I have chosen a hobby um, that gets me stung. Hang around times. with flying, stinging needles. Yes, a little bit. Yeah, weird, exactly. I know a lot of people like it. Yeah, but... Bees are really fascinating, and I could tell all sorts of stories about how they are much more clever and um, intelligent than we give them credit for. But the fundamental way a hive works is that there is one queen whose job is basically to lay eggs, and all of the other workers, about 50,000 of them in a hive, 
do various jobs and they change jobs based on the stage of their life, on what is needed and things like that. So each bee plays a very tiny role in the overall health of the hive. But because they are adaptable and because each of them does their own small role, hive, uh, beehives are very um, resilient and they can exist in the Middle East or Alaska. Um, and their ability to survive in any you know, place um, it is really amazing. And so it's a metaphor that I use for small technologies, because one of the things that you see is, is that every environmental problem or every challenge is unique in its own way around the world, right? The things that we face in the United States are very different than the ones they face for water in Ghana or electricity or, you know, um, fisheries in the Pacific Ocean. And yet the small technologies are adaptable enough and can be, you know, change, and and they all take advantage of that doing small things that add up over time. So that's what makes them very resilient, just like beehives. Mm -hmm. Now we haven't talked about public policy a lot so far, but there are a lot of implications in your presentation. Now the Overton window is pretty narrow on some policies, and tech has the capability of widening it. Now, for instance, no one was interested in taxi regulations until Uber and Lyft came around. Now, right. one of the areas where I see something similar is your uh, work covering distributed electricity and microgrids. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think that the Uber story is really exciting uh, because one of the messages that I have is that we need to empower people, not politicians, and that we need to you know, stop outsourcing the environment um, to politicians not just because politicians tend to have bad solutions that are very costly and tend to give them power, um, but uh, because it do often doesn't work. And so I live in Washington state, you know, near Seattle. And one of the things that really struck me was, is that when Seattle tried to regulate Uber, uh, basically put a cap on how many Ubers there could be, putting Uber essentially into the existing taxi medallion system, there was such a revolt at the next city council meeting two weeks later that they immediately undid the restrictions. And so when you give people power and you take it away from politicians, people don't want to give it back. Um, so I think that's an important lesson in terms, especially in terms of the Overton window, right? You, you close the Overton window for politicians grabbing power and you open it for people taking it back when you give it to them because they don't want to give it back. Um, and so let's talk about what was the example that you that you wanted to raise? Uh, distributed electricity and or yeah. electricity generation and microgrids. So, you know, smart grids are very small right now um, or actually, um, uh, you know, uh, microgrids, uh, micro meaning small. So but um, uh, but it is an example of what is possible. And so there is a the Brooklyn microgrid and there are other microgrids. And basically what it is, is people generating typically with solar panels. Now, I have some problems with rooftop solar. They're very expensive. They're often very heavily government subsidized and things like that. But I think the way to get away from that is to tell people, okay, look, you want to buy solar panels? Great. You can do it on your dime. Don't ask us to subsidize you. But we're going to give you the opportunity to essentially be a utility. You can sell energy to your neighbors or other folks and make money on your solar panels. So that's the deal we'll give you. Don't ask for money from us, but we'll give you an access uh, to the market. And that's what these microgrids do. And because it, it can be automated, that when somebody else wants to buy electricity from you, 
uh, and you are willing to sell it, it can all be done automatically based on price points or a variety of other things. And actually, we saw this in Texas during the energy crisis in 2021. People who had solar panels um, and were being paid by the kilowatt hour, when the power went down, they their energy use went down because the cost per kilowatt hour that they could sell that solar uh, was was so high that they that they said, oh, geez, makes sense for me not to dry my clothes, not to turn on my lights, not to use my computer, because every kilowatt hour I, I sell is you know worth something to me. So again, the technology allows the market incentives, the market forces to replace government subsidies and government mandates. And again, it is replacing top-down government power with sort of bottom-up um, empowerment of, of people. Yeah, and what this can do is that there's just too many places where utility policy is just uh, through uh, regulated utilities who tend to get a right the rules uh, by the, uh, that they play by. And this is a way of saying, look, if you as a consumer want your own energy, you can uh, you can go in with your neighbors to to, to buy a wind turbine and 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 live off that, at yeah. least as as, a, as an extreme example of what can be done. But uh, you know, it's, it, the thing about that though is is that I'm look I'm not foolish enough to say that you know this can replace our existing utility system, right? Big natural gas power plants, nuclear plants, things like that. The costs are going to be very low, so I am not foolish enough to say that this is going to replace the system. But it can be a supplement to the system and it can mm. uh, deal with electricity when there are facing blackouts or the shortages of things like that. And you, you talked about a turbine and maybe, you know, a few neighbors can't buy a wind turbine. But in the UK, there is a utility called Octopus Energy and they put up wind turbines. And if you join their little program, when the wind turbine is turning, if you, you it will tell you it's generating electricity. And it says, if you use electricity now, your rates are lower. So, I mean, it's amazingly responsive that, that, to the point that we have gotten. So it's not so far-fetched to say what you said, although I think the cost of a wind turbine is probably beyond individuals. <laughs> that technology, though, or that responsiveness is available now um, at, at even the local level um, when utilities are supporting it. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that I think like the, is the, the meta thing that you're trying to change here that, that can just just reframes the entire environmental debate is the idea of personal responsibility. That is, when people look and see an environmental problem, they want to do something about it rather than call on other people to do something about that, usually elected uh, officials. Right. Now, um, why do you think that that is an important shift to help the environment? I think it's important for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, um, I get very frustrated when I hear politicians say things like, you know, um, only government can solve this problem. You see that all the time from the environmental left and from some politicians. And, and it is in their interest to disempower the public and empower themselves. Uh, and I really don't like that. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing is, is that um, a lot of uh, top-down government solutions simply don't work. Um, so this week um, and next week, they are meeting in Egypt for the UN Climate Conference. And what's interesting is, is that the environmental left actually is tweeting out and putting out stories about what a failure all of the international agreements have been. Um, and so they are starting to recognize that relying on politicians to live up to their promises um, isn't a good bet 
for the environment. For conservatives, you know, if you look at a map, where do conservatives live? They live in the parts of the country where there's nature, right? It's the, it's the people on the left who live in the cities where we've paved over nature. So what I think a key thing is, is to empower people who live near nature, who care about nature to do things for themselves so that they don't have to say, all right, government, big government, I'm going to give you power, which they don't want to. And so that I think has been a big barrier for people on the center right to engage on environmental issues because they're afraid that if they openly say, yes, I care about species, I care about the environment, that they are essentially ceding the ground to big government solutions. And that need not be the case. So I think all of those are important reasons why people should take power back from the politicians. We should empower people, not politicians, to do these sorts of things, because not only is it better for the environment, it's better for personal freedom and prosperity. Yeah. And, and honestly, I kind of like some of the ideas like, look, if you're worried about pollinators, plant some milkweed. Yeah. That, that's yeah, yeah. fully within your control. Yeah. And it's, you know, and then you get to see the butterflies when they arrive. And, you know, so there's a, there's a little benefit in addition to just knowing that you've done something good. Yeah. Now, one of the things you do in the book is uh, you're, you're kind of clear that you don't want to be utopian about this or one of your sources calls it tech saviorism. So given that like there are some big problems, we're trying to make uh, make some improvements on this one. It is our responsibility to do this one. We have a lot of technological tools that can help us make some progress on this. So how optimistic are you uh, about these problems, Uh, especially now that you've dug in on it uh, uh, to write this book? I'm very optimistic. Look, I'm not I, I, I am not against government. I am not an anarchist. Um, I worked in government. I saw the good work that we did, but I also recognize its limitations. And when you talk to people who work in agencies, often they will, sometimes quietly, but they will admit that there are limitations to what they can do, problems that they can't solve. Not all of them, but but I've talked with plenty of them who are frustrated and, and, and want alternatives. But this has given me real hope, and I think there's really, um, it's an exciting time. And And when people ask me, you know, young people say, oh, I want to get into the environment. What should I do? I tell them, don't go into government, go into NGOs or businesses, because that's where the real innovation um, is occurring. And so um, I think that's what makes me optimistic about this. And the other thing that makes me optimistic is that this is across the political spectrum. Uh, The person who wrote the forward to my book works with the World Wildlife Fund. So, you know, she is more on the left. But we agree that these types of things hold opportunities to solve problems that are not being solved right now. And so a lot of times when conservatives are confronted by friends or relatives or other things like that saying, why don't you care about the environment? Why don't you care about climate? What I'm hoping that my book can be is both a tool for you to respond and something that you can show them that they will say, oh, you know, actually, I kind of like some of these ideas and show that they are more effective than sort of the political constant political fighting in the battles, which seems to go nowhere. So what are some things that you're going to be looking at to tell whether you're making progress? So again, because the cost of information is so low, you can actually measure results and make sure that you are achieving what you want. And so let's just do, let's just do sort of crass financial. Um, I have in my um, electrical box, a little thing called Sense. It's a little orange box that connects to my, uh, the wires in my house. 
and it samples the electricity a million times a second and uses artificial intelligence to determine, to use those signals to determine what appliances I'm using. And it tells me, hey, you're using a lot of electricity here. You're not using a lot of electricity here. Here are the goals that you're meeting, things like that. And it compares me to, you know, other households of similar size and things like that. Well, that gives me information about ways that I can save money. And I will tell you that when I first put it in my house, I noticed that the uh, light bulbs in my kitchen were using an unbelievable amount of money. I was really actually surprised. Now I'm an energy geek, right? You would expect me to know where I'm using energy, but I was, but I was surprised. Um, and so I went and I swapped my uh, incandescent bulbs for LEDs. Uh, and they paid for themselves within a matter of a few months. And I was able to show that with the data I had. Con you know, alternatively, if you're doing something and the data comes back that you now have and shows it's not working, you can say, oh, I need to do something different. And you have an incentive to do something different. We don't see that in politics, right? When a politician does a policy and it fails, they don't say, boy, I really screwed that up. What they say is either, oh, no, it's working great, or the only reason it's not working is we don't have enough money. We need to put even more money behind it. So there is very little accountability in some political solutions, but there is almost absolute accountability uh, when you use these types of technologies because it aligns your personal incentives with environmental outcomes. Todd, I really like that because you just said, like, you can make your own progress. You can measure it now. Do uh, do your part to do to do what you can, do what you care about. And and, it, and there's a lot of the things that you're talking about that can help you save money and improve your, uh, uh, your uh, ecological impact in the world. So Todd, thank you very much. The book again is Time to Think Small. Todd, thank you for helping us understand what's within the Overton window. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.